This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's look at the Alec Manassian verdict. And joining us from Global News Radio 640 Toronto is Brianna Carnegie. Brianna, we talked about the fact that this verdict is a long verdict. How many pages? Yeah, Mike, it was actually 68 pages long, and thankfully Justice Anne Malloy did not go through all of the details in uh, reading out her verdict, but she did touch upon some really key things, and I want to go through them with you. Um, ultimately, I mean, this is the fate that the that Alec Manassian wanted to avoid when he had attempted suicide by cop in April of 2018. Today, he was found guilty and criminally responsible of 10 counts of first-degree murder, 16 counts of attempted murder for driving a rented van down a busy section of Toronto's Young Street. It was April 23rd, 2018. He had only stopped when he could no longer see out of the windshield. So the interesting part with this seven-week trial was that it was not a question about his actions. He admitted to, to carrying out the attack. Really what it focused on was his state of mind at the time of the attack. His lawyers had argued that due to autism spectrum disorder, he should be found not criminally responsible, that he lacked empathy, and they argued that it was he also lacked a rational choice. So with Justice Anne Malloy reading out her verdict today, she ruled that Alec Manassian did have a functioning, rational brain, that he made a choice to carry out the attack, and that he knew it was morally wrong by society's standards. She said that it was ultimately what he wanted to do. Brianna Carnegie joining us from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We have seen an interesting defense in this case, Brianna. Did that come up at all this morning, the idea that Alec Manassian, being on the spectrum, played a role according to his defense? Of course, and that's been really the key highlight throughout this seven-week trial. I mean, this morning from Justice Anne Malloy, we heard that she does um, agree with some experts that people that have uh, autism spectrum disorder, they do have intellectual impairments, and that's not the case for Alec Manassian. Uh, she did go in further saying that experts uh, agree that Manassian was not psychotic at the time of the attack. He was not suffering delusions. He was aware of what he was doing and aware that murdering people is a criminal offense. She also went on to touch that uh, reviewing the ASD, uh, autism spectrum disorder, meets the criteria to be considered a mental disorder for purposes of the section of not being criminally responsible at section 16. Um, but ultimately, she ruled that this is not the case with Alec Manassian. Brianna, finally, what happens next? For sure. So there are a bunch of meetings that need to be happening. There was one as early as, I believe it's March 18th, that's going to be setting the timeline and the t- uh, uh, for what needs to happen next there will be a sentencing and we all we already know that with this not guilty and or rather this guilty and not criminally responsible ruling that it all it already carries an automatic life sentence we just don't know at this time if it's a concurrent or consecutive for the parole ineligibility so we have to find out that next Um, but i do want to touch upon before we we go there was one really interesting part of this case that that struck out to me and it, it's sticking out to the families as well they, they touched upon it in their reaction pieces um, justice Anne malloy refused to give alec manassian the fame and notoriety that he wanted in her ruling so she has rather than naming him in her ruling she actually referred to him as john doe so you may see some of the the names come out with this saying doe 
in this, and as she's referring to the, the ruling, it's because she refused to name him directly. So we actually did hear from, um, Al, rather, from Nick D'Amico, his sister, Anne-Marie, died in April 2018. Um, and... We asked him, Global News asked him on not naming the mass killer. He actually said that this is the most important thing that people should take away from today, that we should aim to change the culture and acknowledge uh, that people um, should not be committing crimes of this nature. We shouldn't be naming them and that fame can be achieved in positive ways that we should set that precedent. Fascinating. Well, Brianna, we thank you for your coverage on this and thanks so much for the time. Please keep safe. Thanks so much, Mike. That's Brianna Carnegie from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. That is a really, really interesting point to take from this, that the judge would take the time and say, I'm not naming this guy. Because one of the things that he wanted and that he had talked about was that this would provide him with fame. And so if we're to look at people who are doing that, mass murders by way of whatever means to not name them takes away that option if we did that on a regular basis if we did that on an absolutely 100 percent basis what would that do in the minds of anyone who would want to carry this out and think i'm going to gain great fame by doing this what if you knew that you weren't. Now, how possible is it? I said the name. Maybe I'm going to stop saying the name because I like that attitude. I said the name going into the interview. But you make them John Doe, Jane Doe, that takes away that fame, doesn't it? That, that is a great thing to bring out of this. It's a great dinner table discussion for later on tonight. One thing that this COVID-19 pandemic has done is it has been able to get us talking about how things are working in our society. And some conversations that began long before the pandemic have certainly come up quite frequently. One of those conversations involves a basic income. And Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and has looked at basic income very, very closely. I'm not sure how powerful the microscope has been, but it's been powerful. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? Great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Let's, uh, let's kind of look under your microscope. When did you begin to really focus in on what basic income means? Well, it's a great question because we were aware of basic income as a concept, but it wasn't until uh, 2018, really, that we had the experience of being able to test it and how it worked in Hamilton as well as in Thunder Bay and in Lindsay, Ontario. And about 4,000 participants were chosen for the Ontario Pilot Project, and they were each given uh, a basic income, and they were told the project was going to last about three years. Uh, Mike, the transformation of, of people who had experienced poverty for, for so long was, was outstanding. We saw people who were able, uh, through the basic income pilot, to, to really stabilize their housing. They were eating better. They were feeling better. Their health was improving. And I think from my perspective, 
as somebody who's worked uh, on poverty issues for a long time, really that sense of dignity, that restoration of dignity uh, of people who had experienced poverty for, for so long was really the most important piece of it. And it, it really changed people's lives in, in many ways. Uh, unfortunately, the new provincial government cancelled the pilot halfway through, um, but we were able to grab some important uh, information. Uh, working with McMaster University, uh, we surveyed more than 200 of the pilot participants in Hamilton, and, and they found that uh, basic income had really made an astounding difference in their lives. So, Tom, let's describe what basic income looked like in that pilot project. What was it offering to individuals who took part in the pilot? Yeah, it's a good question, Mike. It was a randomized trial, so only 1,000 people in Hamilton were were chosen to participate, and uh, they were randomly selected uh, by the government. We We weren't working directly with the government, but we were able to observe uh, really how the how the pilot was rolling out. So individuals tended uh, to get about $1,400 a month. Um, and, and in comparison, uh, about half the individuals who, who got on the pilot were on provincial social assistance programs, so either Ontario Works or the Ontario Disability Support Program. Um, so right away for those folks in Ontario Works, it, it doubled doubled their monthly income. So instead of having to, to line up at food banks uh, every week and, and worry about whether they were going to be evicted because they couldn't pay their rent, uh, they were able to really stabilize their housing and eat better and, and put away some food uh, for the first time in a long time. Um, there, About half the uh, participants, though, were, were also working. These were folks who were working maybe two or, or three part-time jobs, but just not being able to cobble together enough hours or, or enough income uh, to be able to work uh, to move out of working poverty. Um, so for those individuals, they were getting a, a bit of a supplement through the basic income pilot. And, and one of the one of the age old, I guess, criticisms uh, of the idea of basic income is that it will encourage people not to work. But we found the exact opposite. We found that uh, people who were working. Uh, and receiving a basic income continued to work, and they actually started looking for better jobs. They uh, started going for skills upgrading, uh, going back to school in some cases to to try to get better jobs and and really improve their improve their situations and improve their career. Uh, so, from many different uh, perspectives, through very many different metrics, we found basic income was really having a positive impact on people's lives. We're talking with Tom Cooper, director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. We're looking at the results of a pilot project which was stopped partway through, but as Tom says, fortunately, they were able to get information. You bring up the point that always seems to be the first argument against basic income, the idea that, well, if you're giving people money and if it's enough to live on, come on, that's all they're going to do. That's that's all you need, right? And you're finding that, no, that's that's not what people were doing and would they have had the opportunity to just say okay i'm not going to work right now yeah and and certainly in some cases that may have happened if if they were looking after a family member who may have had a disability uh and and i know that was the case for a couple of people but the vast majority of people really uh 
wanted to use basic income um, uh, really as a kickstart for their lives. I, I, some people started their own businesses, uh, really used the opportunity to, to launch that entrepreneurial spirit that, uh, that we love talking about. Um, but I, I think probably the best example of how we would react to a basic income has been from our collective experience over the last year, Mike. You know, during this pandemic, uh, a lot of us have, have, have had to, you know, operate in a different way. We've all been <laughs> isolated uh, to one degree or another. But I, I, I think at our hearts, we, we want to be part of the solution. We want to contribute to society. We want to get back out there uh, and, and, and work and, and do our best um, for ourselves and our families and our society. So, yeah, I think the findings aren't necessarily surprising because the will of people uh, to to want to work, uh, to want to contribute to society is, is very strong. But it might be doing it in a little bit of a different way. For some people, uh, it may be about, you know, taking care of family members who are elderly or, or, or younger children uh, or, or family members with disabilities. It, it might be contributing in other ways. So I think we just need to think about it a little bit differently. But for the vast majority of people it was it was about trying to uh really refine their careers and and improve their opportunities tom in your mind how would someone qualify for basic income if we were to say hey someday if this is something that is used by the government how would it happen yeah it the Ontario government at the time used a cutoff of, of $34,000 for individuals. So if you were somebody who was earning less than that uh, and in one of the pilot cities, you could apply to be on the basic income. So that might be how a national basic income might roll out. Um, I, th- I think there's a number of possibilities out there, and there's a lot of different ideas of, about whether it would be a universal uh, basic income or more targeted basic income. Um, I, I, I think these are definitely uh, good conversations to have right now. Um, particularly, we've seen the uh, the impact CERB, uh, the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, had on, on so many families during the pandemic. Um, but it's also important to recall that that two thousand adult that two thousand dollars a month that many Canadians, I think it was more than seven or eight million Canadians were receiving, um, is vastly uh, improved over what uh, many people in our in our province and it's about nine hundred and fifty thousand people in Ontario who rely on provincial social assistance to try to survive, and those rates are so woefully inadequate that it's not letting. Um, people move out of poverty, eat healthy, or stay healthy. A uh, single person on Ontario Works today only gets uh, $733 a month to live on. So the numbers don't add up. You can't pay for rent and buy food and, and, and get clothes and, and hygiene supplies and cleaning supplies, let alone being able to afford a telephone so a potential employer could call you back. Um, so the numbers have never added up for social assistance. And, and I would argue that that system is broken, it's antiquated, it belongs back in the 20th century. We need a new solution for the 21st century, and I really do believe it's basic income. Tom Cooper joining us, director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Could it be a system, Tom, that 
just brings people from whatever their earnings happen to be up to, say, a number like 34000 whatever number it was decided upon. So if you were making 31000 you would be brought to thirty-four. Is that one of the ideas? Yeah, and I think uh, that worked for uh, a lot of people during the Ontario pilot. It's called, uh, it's called a negative income tax model. And it, it, it certainly enabled people who were working, um, you know, some of those people who were working multiple part-time jobs and, and not being able to make ends meet. Um, a lot of uh, uh, particularly younger people uh, today are having a lot of trouble um, just getting those jobs that used to exist in society. You know, the, the, uh, the nine-to-five, uh, you know, contract positions are, are much more uh, prevalent now. There's few benefits. And, and so having basic income as a foundation uh, could really, I think, bolster uh, a lot of people who are, who are what we would call precariously working right now. And, and it certainly would uh, benefit society as a whole because uh, we wouldn't have that level of working poverty that we see today. As a final question, Tom, would this be something you think would be best implemented at a national level or at a provincial level, or does it matter? Yeah, and I think that's a a great question. I I really do think there needs to be collaboration, um, because right now provincial governments are responsible uh, for social service payments, um, but it's really the federal government that has the economic resources, the financial resources, to be able to make uh, a basic income work. And, and we actually have two very similar programs to basic income right now that are run by the federal government. We have the Canada Child Benefit, which goes to low-income families with kids. And we also have one for seniors called the Guaranteed Income Supplement that goes to uh, people age 65 and older um, who may not be getting enough through old age security um, uh, to move out of poverty. So. They get uh, the uh, guaranteed income supplement as, as, as really uh, additional money, uh, which is very much like a basic income. It's really that group, that group in between, people between the ages of 18 and, and 64, who are being left out. And I really think the federal government working with the provinces can make a difference in those lives. Tom, thanks so much for bringing us up to date on basic thanks. income. We really appreciate the time. Thank you, Mike. That is Tom Cooper, director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, where they were part of a pilot and were able to look, even though the pilot was stopped, at the results. So as we move along in this pandemic, and you realize that because we've had it happen to so many people, jobs can just stop. And if this happens and it's one or two people who are affected by a layoff, then maybe it doesn't have quite the same impact from what we have seen now. And maybe that provides us the impetus to have those discussions and say, okay, this system that, and you talk to anybody who has worked in the current system that we have for social assistance, and they will use words that Tom used, broken, antiquated. Why don't we see this addressed? We need to, and maybe it's something that comes after we get out of the current situation that we're in governments don't need more on the to-do list at the moment but soon they will so where should this rent no we haven't had enough of over the last little while junior hockey announcements we've had them sure in the western hockey league 
And we've had things happening in the QMJHL. And while we don't have an OHL announcement about what's happening with that season right now, we do have a junior hockey announcement that will fill us with an opportunity to tell some stories and recognize some incredible London Knights players. Joining us right now is a former London Knight. He is a television color commentator, and he is the president of the alumni with the London Knights. Please welcome Rick Doyle to London Live. Rick, how are things? Things are great, Mike. How's things with you? Not too bad. Normally, we would be talking on a concourse at Budweiser Gardens right about now, as a matter of fact. And uh, we're still in different times, but uh, we still have a big announcement that came out about an hour ago as to who the newest members of the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame happen to be. For anybody who has not heard the announcement, read the announcement, read details, Rick, the floor is yours. Who is going in as this year's class? Well, we have six distinguished former London Knights or associates of the London Knights going in this year. And Daryl Strand from the 1960s, he played in 65-66 when the London Nationals were a junior A hockey club. And Daryl was the first captain in franchise history. And uh, Daryl goes in this year along with Pat Riggin. Pat played in the uh, 70s, in the mid-70s. And in fact, Pat was the Dave Pinckney Trophy winner in 76-77 with the lowest goals against average in the league. The interesting thing about that is in 52-53, Pat's father, Dennis, when he played for the Hamilton Red Wings, won that same trophy, the only father-son combo to win that trophy in league history. In the 1980s, we had Dave Simpson. What a year he had in 81-82. He was the CHL Player of the Year and still holds the team record for the most points in a single season with 155. Dave goes in as a 1980s representative. Tom, Tom Kostopoulos is the 1990s representative. Who can forget 35 points in 25 games in their run to, memoria, to a, uh, an OHL final in 1999. Danny Savret, the first captain in franchise history to raise a Memorial Cup over his head. And Danny was the 31st captain in franchise history. And in fact, he was captain of the team of the century, the 2005 team that was named a couple of years back. And Bill Long as a builder, Bill was the coach and general manager for most of the 70s and 80s. Bill won a Memorial Cup himself with the Niagara Falls Flyers in 64-65, but he also won a Matt Layden Trophy as Coach of the Year in 76-77 with the London Knights. That is a distinguished group, and you talk about Bill Long. The OHL's Distinguished Service Award is named after Bill Long. Rick, you had a chance to play for Bill Long. Can you tell us what he was like as a coach? Because immediately people start using words like class and gentleman, and the words just keep coming, and they resemble those words, and you could keep saying them and saying them and saying them and still be describing Bill Long. What was he like as a coach? Well, Bill had that distinguished look, and there's one thing I always say about Bill Long when you describe him as a coach. Bill was 
way ahead of his time in 76, 77. In fact, when Bill was behind the bench with the London Knights, one of the things that Bill had as far as living up to, he wouldn't trade or he didn't want to trade a player in midseason because he didn't want to interrupt his school year and he didn't want to interrupt his experience in London. So Bill, a very distinguished gentleman, and when you hear people talk about Bill Long as a gentleman, that's exactly what he was. So uh, it was a lot of fun playing for Bill. He made that 76-77 season a lot of fun for anyone that played on that team. And that was the season that you went to the OHL Championship Series after after the big Game 8 win and the Dan Eastman goal. And you mentioned Pat Riggin. He was the guy in net through all of that and then ended up going to the Memorial Cup with the Ottawa 67s because back in those days, every league wanted to make sure they had as, as good a chance to win. Well, he was the first London Knight that played a full season with London and then ended up playing in a Memorial Cup tournament. And, in fact, Pat won three of the four games that he played in that tournament. Unfortunately, he lost the Memorial Cup game to the new Westminster Bruins. But uh, he was named to the All-Star team in the 1977 Memorial Cup, and he was an OHL first-team All-Star in 76-77 in our league. And when you look at his win totals, I mean, we had to get – Herb Morell to go back into filing cabinets and game sheets, but he was nice enough to do that for us this week because Brett Brochu was one of the first London Knight goalies who, at 17 years old, was coming close to what Pat Riggin had for win totals. Pat Riggin ended up with 37 wins as a 17-year-old. Not only has no London Knight touched that since, nobody in the OHL has touched that since as a 17-year-old. Well, he, the one thing that Pat had is he was a competitor, and uh, he wouldn't give up on a play. Now, we've seen several London Knights goaltenders come through the system recently that are exactly that way. Hauser comes to mind. Parsons comes to mind. Certainly, Brochu comes to mind that has that same mindset of compete. And Pat had that mindset way back in the 70s, in the mid-70s, when he played with the London Knights. He kind of set the standard, didn't he? He did. We are talking with Rick Doyle, president of the London Knights Alumni Association, London Knights television color commentator, and also a former London Knight about the six new members of the London Knights Don Brankley Hall of Fame. When we look at Daryl Edistrand, Daryl Edistrand is someone who went on and played a long time in the National Hockey League, won a Calder Cup championship. There was a story, Rick, about Daryl Edistrand being in a fight with Bobby Orr one year, and then the Bruins went and acquired him the next year. You talk about trades that take place. What happens in a dressing room when all of a sudden a guy shows up that you've had uh, you've had a run-in with in the past? Hey, listen, all that's set aside as soon as you're pulling on the same jersey, Mike. There's no <laughs> there's no problem with that guy once he steps through the threshold of the dressing room. So, yeah, Daryl and, uh, and Bobby Orr were uh, actually uh, lined up with each other uh, through, I think it was two seasons, the 72, 73, and 73, 74 season where they were uh, partners. And in the 71, 72, when Daryl was playing with Pittsburgh, Indeed, that's what happened, is that uh, he challenged Bobby Orr. 
<laughs> and you mentioned Dave Simpson. I mean, player of the year in the Canadian Hockey League in 81-82, scholastic player of the year. And you look at the business of hockey once you get into the NHL, drafted by the New York Islanders at a time when I don't think the New York Islanders were even entertaining the thought of rookies on their team. There was no way. I mean, that was uh, the Trache, Bossy, um who else? Clark Gillies played on that team. Goring played on that team. I mean, that that's a different era in the National Hockey League when veteran players played well into their 30s, uh, most of them. And that's exactly what the dynasty of the New York Islanders had in uh, in that time period when Dave Simpson was trying to graduate into the National Hockey League. And unfortunately, he hit that ceiling where all these veteran players were playing well into their 30s. So Dave never really got the opportunity to shine, but what a season he had in 81-82 with the London Knights. You mentioned a couple of the trophies that he had. He was a first-team All-Star at the OHL level in 81-82. He won the Red Tilson Trophy in 81-82 as the league's most outstanding player. The Bobby Smith Trophy you mentioned as the Scholastic Player of the Year, and he won the William Hanley as the most sportsmanlike, like hardware coming at every direction at Dave Simpson because of that 81-82 season. 155 points, still a franchise record for a single season. Uh, I can remember talking to Dave a couple of years back, and uh, he said there was only once where he felt that that record was threatened, and that was the year that Pat Kane played here, and he ended up with 145 points, but he played less games than Simpson did. So... Dave was uh, well advised to be a little bit nervous about Patrick Kane, but 40 years later, here he is. He still holds the single-season record at 155 points. Doesn't that say something right there? And then Tom Kostopoulos, Rick, I remember talking to Paul McIntosh, and Paul McIntosh told this story of seeing Tom Kostopoulos in his draft year. And he says, here you had this guy. He was tied up with a defenseman along the boards. The puck was starting to move out of the zone. All of a sudden there was a turnover, and somebody rimmed the puck around the boards to where Tom and this other guy were still tied up. And Tom couldn't get his arms or his stick free, so he put his face in the way and deflected the puck down and then kicked it in front of the net. And Paul McIntosh watched that and said, you know what, i got to have this guy on my team. This guy gets things done. You mentioned Pat Riggin not giving up on, on pucks in net. Tom Kostopoulos, he didn't give up on pucks ever. Well, you know, it's interesting because the coaching staff at that time had a nickname for him. It's Tom Nostopoulos <laughs> because there was nothing that could stop uh, Tom Kostopoulos when he was playing with the London Knights, particularly in that 99 season when they took the run to the OHL final. I mean, 35 points in 25 games in playoff hockey. That's the difference. Regular season hockey, yeah, you can put up 35 points in 25 games, and a lot of players have come through the system to do that. But once you get into the playoffs and the level goes up one more notch, that's tough to do. So Tom Kostopoulos did that in 99 in the Knights' run to the OHL final, and unfortunately they lost in seven games to the Belleville Bulls, but Tom was the leading scorer on the team during the playoffs that season. And what does it say about a guy who, if you looked at him and, and matched him up with other players 
He wouldn't have the hardest shot. He wouldn't be the fastest skater. He probably wouldn't rise up in any of those skill categories. But you put together everything he had, that sheer will, and look at the points you just mentioned in the playoffs. That's wild. Well, and it was that work ethic that actually got Tom to the next level. He played a long time. I mean, he's he's only been retired for four or five years now. In fact, he's working in the Pittsburgh Penguins organization right now as their coach of player development. So Tom's still in the game, and uh, the reason that he's in the game is because he had such a great work ethic, and the coaches recognized that, and certainly it came to fruition particularly in the 99 playoffs. And then you said it, Danny Savret, first member of the London Knights organization ever to lift the Memorial Cup over his head. And you talk about a team that just wouldn't let themselves believe that they were as good as they were and always had something to prove. And the guy wearing the captain's C, reminding them and, and kind of leading that way, that was him. That was Danny Savret. And, and the things that that team achieved, wow, sensational. And another sensational pro career as well. Well, it, it was fun to watch that team. It was fun to call games when that team was playing. Now, Sabret was the 31st captain in franchise history, and he happened to be captain of the team of the century that was named there a couple of years ago. He was a first all-star in 04-05. He was the defenseman of the year in 04-05, winning the Max Kaminsky Trophy in Ontario. There's only been eight London Knights to win the Max Kaminsky Trophy in the 56-year uh, history of the franchise. And Danny Savret is one of those eight to win the Max Kaminsky. The first captain in the history of the franchise after 40 years. It was 40 years when the London Knights finally lifted that Memorial Cup over their head. And Danny Savret did it right at Budweiser Gardens after beating the Ramushki Oceanic and Sidney Crosby in a 4 nothing game. So... Uh, it was fun to watch that team, and certainly Danny Savret is a worthy member of the uh, Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame. Rick Doyle joining us. Rick, we can't obviously recognize everybody in person. Are there plans in the future whenever we get back into a more normal situation, when we have London Knights hockey going back again? Are we planning a ceremony? There will be a ceremony, and they're going to build that into the schedule next year. Uh, clearly, uh, the on-ice ceremony gives the fans an opportunity to see these players and cheer them one more time. And for the players, it's nice to get that recognition walking out onto the uh, Budweiser Gardens ice in front of 9,100 people in the stands and just drink it all in with regards to a career that was uh, very well-respected and a, a Hall of Fame entry that's very well-deserved. Danny Savret, Tom Kostopoulos, Dave Simpson, Pat Riggin, Daryl Edestrand, and Bill Long inducted into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame. Rick, thanks for sharing some memories with us. This has been a, a great COVID break to talk some hockey in the midst of, you know, whatever it is that we're going through that we'll get through in the end. You keep safe. Thanks so much for the time. You keep safe, Stubbsy. I hope I run into you at the concourse at the Garden shortly. Can't wait. That is Rick Doyle, president of the London Knights Alumni Association, also Knights television color commentator, and a former Knight himself, playing with Pat Riggin, playing for Bill Long 
on that 76-77 team that we were talking about. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 